An Instagram post gets an unexpected boost. A TikTok catches in the algorithm. Sometimes that's all it takes to launch someone into internet fame. But then what? This Blew Up is a new podcast documentary that reveals how social media stardom is made. It's a different kind of fame that's not always as glamorous as it looks. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network, I'm Alyssa Bereznak. You can listen to This Blew Up on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. You're a powerhouse of a person balancing it all. Work, life, family, podcast. And your ride should be no different. The 2024 Hyundai Sonata Hybrid is a powerhouse of a sedan that meets all your needs. With the sleek front end, plus stylish interior, an available 12.3-inch digital instrument cluster, and seamless tech integration. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the new 2024 Hyundai Sonata Hybrid. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. Please welcome to our stage David Brooks and Larry Wilmore. They'll chat, and then it'll be a, a chance for you to ask questions. Thanks, okay. Thank you. Wow, look at this crowd that we can't see. <laughs> Welcome very much. Welcome to uh, uh, Live Talks Los Angeles, as I've been told it is. Uh, I used to say LA Live Talks, I said, no, Live Talks Los Angeles, so I want to get that right. And to a recording of my podcast, Black on the Air. So welcome. Welcome, I appreciate you coming out. And it's so great to meet and talk to David Brooks. How about another hand for him? Okay. Thank you. Um, it is an honor and pleasure to be with you. Oh man, honor's all mine. I've been a fan for a long time. Uh, love reading your stuff, uh, your op-eds now. Uh, but so many great books too. But how to know a person, the art of seeing others deeply and being <laughs> deeply seen. Ooh. I'm looking at you right I now. know. I know. It's like looking through my... It's like, uh, what was that movie? Avatar. It was like, I see you. Is that the line? How does... Okay. All right. This is... I asked this question, but for this book, I really want to know the answer. How do you come to this? Like, what... How do you land on that as a topic of this book? Yeah, so there are personal reasons and there are social reasons. I'll start with yeah. the personal. Okay. And so I open the book by saying, uh, if you watch that movie, Fiddler on the Roof, uh, you know how emotional and huggy and warm Jewish families can be. Always dancing and singing. And right. I come from the other kind of Jewish family. <laughs> and so the culture in my family was think Yiddish, act British. Yes. And so we were stiff upper lip. If I were a poor man, you would. Yeah, right. so I, I was like just all cerebral. Right. And then I become a writer. Uh, and being a writer is pretty cerebral and solitary. And I, I wanted to, I, I joke in the book that I wanted to date in high school this woman named Bernice. Mm -hmm. And she didn't want to date me. She wanted to date some other guy. And I remember thinking, what is she thinking? I write way better than that guy. <laughs> and so those were my values. And I stayed pretty cerebral. I went to work. I was a conservative columnist in the New York Times, right. 
which is a job I like in, to being the chief rabbi in Mecca. Uh, not a lot of company there. And then I go to work in TV, and for TV, the PBS NewsHour is cerebral. Yes. And so we have a great audience. I love doing the show. I've been doing it for like 20 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but we're, we have a seasoned audience. And so if seasoned, I, seasoned, I like uh, if I 93 year old lady comes up to me in the airport, <laughs> I know what she's going to say. I don't watch your show, but my mother loves it. And so that's pretty good. That's, our, that's, our, that's pretty good. Actually. And so anyway, so I'm spending a half a century living up here in my head right. without much connection to anything down here. Interesting. And so I've, I've been on a little journey to try to become more emotional, more emotionally available, okay. uh, better at intimacy, mm-hmm. probably a little better at friendship. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I wrote a book on emotion called The Social Animal. That was like 15 years ago. Yeah. And then I wrote a book about character called The Road to Character. Mm-hmm. And I learned writing a book on character doesn't give you good character. Yeah. <laughs> buying a book on character, I mean, reading a book on character doesn't give you good character, but buying mm-hmm. a book on character does give you good character. So, yes. And so I'm on it. I'm on the, so I write my, you know, we writers are, we're working out our stuff in public. Right. And so I'm trying to become, I'm a naturally aloof person, but I'm trying to be a more capable of intimacy, capable of relationship, mm-hmm. and really just good at showing up for people in, the, in a generous way. So the book is really me, me trying to teach myself how to be a better human. It's really interesting. It's really been a long journey for you, and you get very personal in it too. You mentioned you went through a divorce during this, this journey. If the journey started 15, 20 years ago, maybe? Something like that. So is, has some of the writing affected you personally? Have, have, has it tr- um, translated to behavioral change in yourself, have you noticed? Yeah, for sure. So A, it used to be nobody ever confided in me because mm-hmm. I, I was like on the move. Uh, and now people confide in me. Uh, and I used to be, I was just very distant. And I was at a conference last summer in Nantucket and they gave everybody in the audience a lyric sheet with a, a love song. Mm-hmm. And they said, pick a stranger in this audience and sing it into their eyes. Wow. And a previous version of me would have, like I would have spontaneously combusted. <laughs> but I did it, I found some guy, I yeah. sang a love song into his eyes. <laughs> and so I, a little more emotional, and I mentioned- I mean, what happens in Nantucket? Yes, they said Nantucket, We had a great night afterwards. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the other joke is, so we're dating now. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> and I mentioned like, I've been interviewed by Oprah twice in my life. Amazing, I love I, that. I just, and so, oh, in one in 2014 great. and one in 2019. Yeah. And after the second interview, she says to me, David, you've changed so much, you were so emotionally blocked before. And so that was like a good- now why, why is Oprah sitting on this? <laughs> you know, she said, so what, what were Oprah's exact words? She said, I've rarely che- seen someone change so much in middle age. You were so emotionally blocked before. And I was very pleased. I was like, uh-huh. okay, progress. I'm making progress. And she is Oprah, right? So she should know. But this one was like, what the fuck, Oprah? <laughs> Why didn't you tell me this? I could have used this information 20 years <laughs> yeah, ago. Yeah, that's true. Say, but uh, yeah, I'll take self-knowledge from wherever, whatever source I can get it from. Okay, so is this book, it's kind of a... Um, uh, active empathy. Is that a good way to explain it? It feels like it's a book about, I'm using empathy in a broad sense, yeah. but it's more than empathy. It's, uh, 
it's, I don't know if it's a two-way street because it's really one person kind of doing all the work, it seems like, yeah. of, of this communication. How would you describe it? Yeah, though, you know, to, if we're going to have any kind of conversation, it's mm-hmm. got to be two-way. I mean, you, it, Yes, but it, it, this seems like there's one person doing the work in that two-way. The conversation is two-way, but the work seems to be one way. Yeah, well, I mean, and writing isn't necessarily run right. one way. But, you know, one of my favorite sayings about writing is I'm a beggar who tells other beggar where I found bread. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm struggling with something and I find somebody that's helpful to me and I write, put it in a book and maybe somebody else will find it helpful. Uh-huh. And so that part is one way. And th- but then the larger reason I wrote the book is not about David Brooks's personal growth. That sure. by itself would not be that fascinating. Mm-hmm. But, um, but as I'm becoming a little more human, American society is becoming a little less human. Mm. And so rise of depression, rise in suicide. Mm-hmm. 54% of Americans say that no one knows them well. 45% of high schoolers say that um, they're persistently hopeless and despondent. The statistic I like to quote is that uh, the number of people who say they have no close personal friends has gone up by four times since 2000. Wow. And so there's a lot of things going on behind that. And social media is part of the problem, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the problems is that we just don't treat each other with consideration and respect the way mm-hmm. we should. Mm-hmm. And so, and part of that is we just don't have the skills. Mm-hmm. And so in my, my view, being a decent person is you gotta be open-hearted, mm-hmm. but you also gotta have skills. And there are skills like, how do you sit with someone who's depressed? Mm. How do you be a great conversationalist? How do you ask for an offer of forgiveness? How do you break up with someone without crushing their heart? Mm. How do you host a dinner party so that everybody feels included? These are just skills like carpentry or learning to sail or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so I needed to learn these skills. And so really the book is just like, here's how you greet somebody. Here's how you hang out with somebody. Mm-hmm. Then here's how you become a great conversationalist. Here's how do you learn to ask good questions. I mean, the stuff you do on your podcast, those are skills. Mm-hmm. And so maybe, maybe they came naturally, maybe you studied them, but I had to learn them. And so I really just wanted to pass along the skills. I think there's a continual learning of it, but you're right. But some things, we were talking earlier about the thing that's going on in the world right now, and we're talking about an institutional memory and how important it is. There's, there's a cultural institutional knowledge that's important that can get lost, too. Yeah. And I think social media kind of breaks that down. Don't you think? Like, you have all a thousand virtual friends, but how many actual friends? Right, right. Um, what, what, what are the other causes of this breakdown, of this social breakdown? Because it yeah. is a social breakdown, right? Yeah, well, I, I think social media plays a role. I would say sociology plays a role, that, mm. that we don't do enough civic groups. Oh, and so we're not, there's not as many relationships in our lives. I yeah. weirdly have a theory, I have no evidence behind this, that we used to be involved in extended families. Mm-hmm. And so if you had to deal with your crazy uncle and your crazy aunt, that's like learning how to adapt to a very variety of different kinds of people. Now we have much smaller families, so we don't do as much. Mm-hmm. But somehow I think we just stopped teaching these skills. Uh, and social media is everywhere around the world. Mm-hmm. But they're not having the 60% rise in teenage suicide in Denmark mm-hmm. or in Ghana. And so when you get social media with a hyper-individualistic society, yeah. then you get some real social bad news. Yeah, it seemed like for a while that drugs were... You know, it seemed like that was going to be the problem. You know, it was, 
you know, the 60s were like this gateway to this horrible future where drugs are going to bring us down. But now it seems like it's narcissism. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it almost seems like drugs is, is a good thing now. Yeah. You know? so, but but yeah, narcissism so, seems to be the thing that agree. is the, the, the rotting thing. Yeah, so there's this thing called the narcissism test yeah. where scientists will go to people and say, do these statements apply to you? I find it easy to manipulate people because I'm so extraordinary. Oh my or, God. Or I like to look at my body or somebody should write a biography of me. And so the median narcissism score has gone up 30% in the last 20 years. That's crazy. And so uh, like if you measure Americans' math skills, yeah. we're 26 in the world. If you ask Americans, are you really good at math? We're number one in the world <laughs> in thinking we're really good at math. And so I just think our narcissism skills have gone up. And the number one reason we don't see each other is we're just not curious. We're just not curious about each other. And so I'll go to a party and I'll leave. And I think that whole time, nobody asked me a question. Mm -hmm. And I've come to estimate based on no data, just my life, that like 30% of the people you meet are good question askers. Mm -hmm. And the others just aren't interested in you. They're perfectly nice, but they're a little egotistical. Yeah. And they can't see the world from your point of view. Mm -hmm. And so there's a little story I have in the book. It's about a guy on the side of the river. Yeah. And there's a woman on the I other side that. of the river. Yeah, yeah. And she shouts at him, how do I get to the other side of the river? And he shouts back, you are on the other side of the river. <laughs> and he can't get outside of his own perspective. Right. And so we got, we got to learn to do that. Yeah, there's so much attention. I mean, we take it for granted, you know, especially I think the younger generation, because they don't understand, you know, the older peeps in here, we know what we're talking about. But it doesn't make sense really to have a camera with you all the time. It really doesn't. It, it makes no sense. Think about it, guys. Can you imagine having an Instamatic camera with you <laughs> when you were younger and how obnoxious that would be to be using that camera to take pictures of your food and then showing pictures to your friends <laughs> and all that? Remember when having a slideshow was considered obnoxious? If you <laughs> right, right, invited? That used That's to be true. a joke. That's true. That's now true. it's the thing. Like yeah. It's a constant taking. Yeah. It's a constant you know, recording, not, not only a recording of your life, but then a broadcast of that life, right. yeah. you know, to the world. That's what, it's, that's what social media is all broadcast. I, I looked this up. I'm two months older than you, even though you look 20 years older than me. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, and, and so, like, I actually did have to ask women out on a date in high school. Oh, yeah. And well, I went to an all-boys school. Okay. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but so, like, you learn the skill. Yes, right. Of, like, asking somebody out, you're scared out of your mind. Mm -hmm. But you do it. And then I saw a study of the number of young men who've never asked anybody out on a date. Mm. It's super high. And one of the reasons is they suck at flirting. Mm. They don't know how to, the skill of flirting. And so the, a lot of these social skills are, are being lost. And I'm so mm -hmm. glad I did not have to grow up in the last 10 years. Yeah. Um, and rejection is... You know, it's character building. <laughs> <laughs> I experienced a lot of it, so yes, I must have exactly. an excellent character. You know, uh, I wonder being on the other side of it, you know, there's got to be a way to let someone down gracefully right. too that is part of, of so, learning how to interact properly. So I right. teach, I taught for 20 years at Yale because I only teach at schools I couldn't have gotten into. <laughs> right. uh, and I, I used to ask my students, you know, if you look at social distrust, one of the yeah. statistics that really alarms me is two generations ago, if you ask people, do you trust your neighbors? 60% uh -huh. of Americans said, yeah, my neighbors are trustworthy. Right. Now it's 30% and it's 19% of millennials. Really? And so the younger you get, the more distrustful you are. And so I asked my students, you guys are 20, 
why are you so distrustful? Mm -hmm. And a lot of them will point to things that we can understand. Like, have you lived through the financial crisis, the Iraq war, all that stuff? Mm -hmm. But one woman came up to me and said, I had, I've had four boyfriends in my life and they all ghosted me. Mm. And so they all just, they didn't have a conversation saying, I'm sorry, this is not working out. Like the, that kind of consideration. Mm -hmm. And they just vanished. Right. And so she felt quadruply betrayed. And of course assumes that guy number five is going to betray her. And mm -hmm. so there's just high levels of distrust. Yeah. And can you imagine going through your life thinking um, everyone around me is out to get me? I mean, that would just be yeah. a horrible way to live. And so I try to preach to them, mm -hmm. lead with trust, lead with trust. And sometimes you will be betrayed, but most of the times people will rise to the occasion and be trustworthy for you. Mm -hmm. And even in, you know, it's a brutal five weeks we've been living through mm. on top of a brutal five years. Um, but in my view, it's not naive to lead with curiosity. It's mm -hmm. not my lead to lead with respect. Uh, and it's the most practical and effective way we can fight the increasing dehumanization of our world mm -hmm. is with the kind of conversations I try to write about in the book, that it's a little way of staging a mini revolt mm -hmm. against a world that's just gotten brutal. I agree with you a thousand percent. I was saying in my podcast, I think I, think I said it in my podcast, because <laughs> I know I said it at some point, you know, but I said, be nice first, you know. Yeah. Like, be the first one to be nice yeah. in a situation. And be nice in anonymous situations, too, I think is very important. Right. I try to practice that, like, at the grocery store, you know. Yeah. Like, if I could see a neutral face, you know, you don't know <laughs> if they're in a good mood or bad mood, I'll do a little joke or, yeah. you know, do something funny, you know, that. And people just melt. I think people are so shocked that someone was nice to them, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. without any provocation. And the... I've seen the power of that actually work, you know. You yeah, know. there's an Auden line. Um, if there's going to be, I'm butchering a poetic line, but if the, there's going to be imbalance in our, the love in our relationship, let the more loving one be me. Mm. Uh, and and this, you, you're getting at something that I haven't learned to articulate yet, but mm -hmm. the power of small emotions, mm -hmm. like over yes. the, in the cashier at, the, you know, right. at, at Trader Joe's or whatever it is, Somehow, I think those actually make a material difference in I agree. people's day. I'm a big fan of that, David. I think we get too, people get too caught up in, in the macro of things, which many times they, they can have no effect on. Yeah. But every day you can have effect on the micro. Yeah. You know, every day you can smile to somebody, you can help somebody out. I was at this, um, not to say all the good things I've done, you know, <laughs> but, um, but when I was in the middle of it, I realized there was a value to it. So that's why I bring it up. Um, there was this outdoor fair. I live in Pasadena. And there were some railroad tracks that was crossing. It's, it's uh, part of it where the tracks go through. And this elderly woman was crossing, and she kind of tripped. And I said, ma'am, would you like me to help you? And I just put up my arm. And uh, she said, oh, no, no. I said, oh, no, it's okay. And I just took her hand, you know, and just let her through. And then just started a conversation. And I said, yeah. oh, so what happened? Oh, okay. And we're talking as we're going through. And it was, guys, it was fantastic. And I thought, this is great, <laughs> yeah. you know, to be engaged in this. And she was so happy with it. And she didn't want any help. She wasn't looking for right. it. But she was so grateful, I think, for that connection that we had. Yeah. And, and, but that used, that used to be so much more common, I think, when I was growing up. Yeah. There's a um, social psychologist at Chicago named Nicholas Epley. And he commutes to school. He takes yeah. the train. And he knows, because he's a social psychologist, the thing that makes us happiest is human connection. That's the thing yeah. that makes us happiest. But he looks around the train, and everybody's got the earbuds in and on their screens. Mm -hmm. So he um, decides, okay, I'm going to do an experiment. And for the next several months, he pays people on the train to talk to strangers. Mm -hmm. uh, and then he interviews them afterwards. 
And they all love it. They all say, this is the best train rat I've had in months. It was way better than anything I would have read. And extroverts like it, introverts like it. Mm-hmm. And the, the upshot is he, um, he finds we underestimate how much we're going to enjoy it, mm-hmm. what you just did. We underestimate how much people want to go deep. And so now, one material ways my life has been changed, I'm more likely to talk to people on a plane, on a train, on a bus. Mm-hmm. Not the New York subway, I'm not crazy. <laughs> but, but, but like on the way, I flew here from Miami yesterday and I talked to a guy who was in a rock band. Mm-hmm. Then he went into acting and then he went into tech. Now he's into interior design. A crazy life. I would have just seen some anonymous hipster with a bunch yeah. of tattoos. And it, he's had an amazing life. And it was fun. And I'll remember that conversation for months or years. Uh, mm-hmm. And I don't know what I would have read, but I'm, I would have forgotten it by now. Do you think we'll ever have a micro-cultural revolution? <laughs> <That's> a- <laughs> I mean, where people just kind of turn against uh, some of these, you know, wanting to be in these big movements and <laughs> want to join smaller ones. <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot easier to protest on behalf of some Absolutely. anonymous cause. Especially when there's nothing at stake for you personally. Right, than to yeah. be generous at the close at hand. Absolutely. And one of my heroes is a woman named Iris Murdoch, who's a philosopher and a novelist. And she says, morality is not what happens in the epic moments of life. Mm-hmm. It's, it's casting what she calls a just and loving attention mm-hmm. on the people right around you. And so that quality, the quality of attention that you cast mm-hmm. is just so important. And like in the book, I walk people through the stages of getting to know. And the underestimated one is that first second. Because mm-hmm. when we're first meeting, we're asking ourselves unconsciously, am I going to be a priority for you? Am I going to be a person to you? Mm-hmm. And the way you look at me is going to say my, a lot before any words come out of your mouth. And so I, and there's a, I was at a diner in Waco, Texas, like two years ago. If you're going to be at a diner. You're going it to might as well be like a it. hardcore diner <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with Texas-sized right, omelets exactly. like this thing. Uh, <laughs> and so I'm having breakfast with a lady named LaRue Dorsey, who's like 93. Mm. And she's presenting herself to me as this strict disciplinarian, like she's a tough lady. Mm. And she'd been a teacher most of her career, and she said, I love my students enough to discipline them. And I'm like intimidated by her. And into the diner walks this guy named Jimmy Durrell, who's a pastor, and he pastors to the homeless. Uh, and he comes up to us, he knows us both, and he grabs Mrs. Dorsey by the shoulders and shakes her way harder than you should shake a 93-year-old lady. <laughs> and says, Mrs. Dorsey, Mrs. Dorsey, you're the best, you're the best, I love you, I love you. Wow. And that stern disciplinarian turns into a bright, eye-shining nine-year-old girl. That's mm. the power of attention to change. If you see somebody with a generous eyes, you will change them. Mm-hmm. And partly because Jimmy's like a warm, garrulous guy. Sure. But partly because he's a pastor. So when he meets somebody, he thinks, I'm meeting someone made in the image of God. Mm-hmm. I'm meeting somebody with an invaluable soul. And you don't have to be Christian, Jewish, Muslim, whatever, or atheist. But seeing each person you meet with that kind of respect mm-hmm. uh, is a precondition for seeing them well. Yeah. And so like, even that little first gaze is, yeah. is super powerful. Yeah, in your book you talk about illuminators and diminishers. You make, can you tell yeah. us what the, the distinction is between those two and the affected? Yeah, so know, diminishers yeah. are people who stereotype. Mm-hmm. They ignore, they don't ask you questions. They do a thing called stacking. That if I learn one fact about you, then I make a whole series of assumptions about who I think you must be. Right, right, right. Like you voted for Donald Trump and therefore blah, 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 blah. Right, right, right. And nobody fits, nobody's that simple. Yeah. And so I ran across a woman years ago who was, if I can remember this correctly, she was a, a big Trump supporter 
And, but she was also a lesbian biker who converted to Sufi Islam after surviving a plane crash. I'm like, that don't make sense. Yeah. What stereotype do you fit into? <laughs> yeah. like, right. And so, but diminishers don't see that. They just stereotype. Right. And then um, illuminators make you, they're curious about you. They ask you questions. They make you feel really lit up. Mm-hmm. And so I, I got a bunch of stories about illuminators in the book, but one of them, my favorite, um, is about a woman named Jenny Jerome. Mm-hmm. And she was a young American woman who would later become Winston Churchill's mom. And she's in England in the late 19th century, and she happens to be seated next to William Gladstone as prime minister. And she leaves dinner with Gladstone thinking that she's, that he, he, she's just met. He's the cleverest person in England. Mm-hmm. A couple weeks later, she's at another dinner party, happens to be seated next to Gladstone's great rival, Benjamin Disraeli. And she leaves that dinner thinking that she's the cleverest person in England. Yeah. So you want to be, be Disraeli. Yeah. You want to make people feel that they're clever. And you do that by, like, they, somebody says something interesting. Yes. And then you build on it and say, that's really good. Then you build on it. And let me see if I can expand what you just said. And if you can do that to people, they will leave walking on air. Yeah. And then if you end a conversation, again, it's a skill. It's like, I'm so glad we spend this time together. Mm-hmm. I particularly liked what you said about that woman you mm-hmm. escorted across the road. That was that really valuable to me. And glad we had this time. So if we say, I'm glad we had together, then I pick out something you said. It's just like putting a cherry on top of our conversation. There's kind of a generosity in the middle of this. And I think you yeah. use that term too. Uh, like you don't want to do the, I think you call it topping. Because <laughs> yeah. a lot of times we fall into that, especially in the, in the oppression Olympics. Right? <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> well, my thing is worse. You know? Oh, you think that's bad? Well, this <laughs> happened to me. And sometimes it's not even said in a competition way, but we kind of do it naturally. Yeah. Like we think it's empathetic. We go, yeah, I know what you mean. You know, my thing. And you put the attention back <laughs> yeah. on yourself, right? Oh, slavery? Oh, the Holocaust. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> right, that's yeah. the other way. Yeah, <laughs> right. Right. But like, so topping is, if you tell me you're having problems with your um, teenage son, then I say, oh, I know what you're going through. I'm having a problem with my Tommy. And then I start talking about Tommy. Right. And it seems and like all, I'm trying to relate. It's like, now. let's talk about me. Let's talk about me. <laughs> right. So, so I, I got a whole bunch of tips in the book. Yes. And so one of them is, is literally what you just did. So be a loud listener. Oh, okay. And so I have a friend who, when you talk to him, it's like talking to a Pentecostal church. Mm-hmm. He's like, amen, yes, yes, preach, <laughs> preach that. And mm-hmm. just love talking to that guy. Right. Because he's like a loud listener. And I mean, so like what you do, I would yes, say yes, black yes. people, we do that all the time. Yeah, that is, <laughs> especially in the movie theater. We do that. <laughs> that is true. That Unfortunately, is true. we yeah. do it in the movie theater. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't go in there. I told you not to do that. Look at him. Yeah. <laughs> Why is he doing that, yeah. David? I wonder if any white person has ever done that. I <laughs> <laughs> They're probably in the movie. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's also, you have, uh, I wrote down a few of these because I thought these were interesting, of ways how not to see someone. I thought it was interesting you would put that in the book. Uh, let's talk about some of that because I think sometimes it's, it's kind of instructive to catch yourself doing those types of things, right? Yeah. Uh, egotism is the first one. What does that mean? How, what is yeah, egotism? I mean, most people, they don't see another person just because they're, they're talking about themselves. Mm-hmm. And I get that. I, like, I've now spent four years working on this book. You'd think, I, and I walk into a dinner party filled with earnest resolution. Mm-hmm. I'm going to like question everybody. and I'm going to really make them feel lit up. Mm-hmm. And then I have two glasses of wine. It's like, let me tell you this funny thing that happened to me. Uh-huh. And so it's like, I want to perform. I want people like me. So right. I perform. But you're obliterating the other person. Mm-hmm. And so egotism is one. 
reason we don't see each other. Sometimes anxiety. Mm. We got so much going on in our own head. There's so much noise there. We can't really think about what's going on mm -hmm. in another. Some of it is more uh, like what academics and social scientists do. And I've learned a lot from them. But what they do is they use data to study populations of people. Okay. But that's very different than studying the one unique individual right in front of you. Mm. And so no I think novelists are fantastic at it. Uh, we were talking before, actors are really great at it. Right. And so I, ha I had a chance to interview Matthew McConaughey for this. And he said, and I asked him, how do you get in a role? And he says, well, once I was playing a character who was a hands in the front pocket kind of guy. Mm. So he sort of hunched over. Mm -hmm. I, when he said that, I thought of like Richard Nixon, like kind of hunched over. Yeah. And he says, so I know when that guy's trying to get big, he's going to be fake. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to play him over the top and fake. Mm. And it's like, that's a keen insight. Uh, and there's a, a, a French uh, writer named Guy de Maupassant. And he had one sentence about one character. He was a red-whiskered man who always needed to go through the doorway first. That little sentence, I think, you can imagine a guy who's like elbowing you out of the way because so, he can get through the doorway first. Mm -hmm. And so these are like humanistic insights. And I tell my students, if you want to major in something practical, major in the humanities. Because mm -hmm. novels will teach you about other people. Yeah. And if you don't know about other people, you're going to be miserable. Yeah. And they don't listen to me, but, um, yeah. but, I, but I am right about this. Yeah. Behave I guess I didn't think I was going to be a writer, but it all makes sense because like, I love behavior. You know, yeah. I love how people act and interact. One of my favorite things I ever saw on TV, you guys remember Candid Camera, right? The show. Oh, this was so funny. So they set up this guy who was teaching his wife how to bowl, right? And they set it up so she would get a strike every time. He didn't know that, you know. <laughs> it was fantastic. So the first time she gets a strike, he goes, Scotty, that's great. See, that's, ex that's exactly what I told you. What I told you. <laughs> says, you did exactly how I said to do it. That's great. Just keep doing that. You know? So second one, she pulls another strike. He goes, wow, look at that. Honey, <laughs> that's fantastic. Keep going. Third strike. Whoa, man. Whoa. Wow, you <laughs> really do. Fourth strike. Wow. <laughs> okay, you got it. Then cut to the tenth frame, right? <laughs> it's like the ninth strike. He's not even looking at him. He's sitting over here. <laughs> he can't take it anymore. Yeah. He said he wanted that, the thing that he wanted, but yeah. now he can't take it. You know, yeah. she's taking too much attention so, from him. Well, this know? is like one of the yeah. weird pitfalls of a relationship. Yes, is when your partner has some great accomplishment. Yes. And a lot of people just don't react the way they should. They, they oh, underplay absolutely. it. Yeah. And that's, you think an accomplishment, the relationship's going to be fantastic. Yes. But you get a lot of breaks of relationship because the person doesn't, is not celebrating with you. It's a little bit of yeah. jealousy there. Yeah. How, how big of a factor is social envy and that type of thing as a block for people getting to, you know, see people and that sort of thing? Well, I hate Britney Spears because she's number one on the bestsellers. So. <laughs> no, um, you know, it, it, life is, a lot of it is a status competition. And mm -hmm. a lot of the, this book, frankly, and this journey has been uh, like getting the self out of the way mm -hmm. and being able to like not be, not think about yourself all the time, mm -hmm. uh, which is hard when you're a newspaper columnist because bloviation is my job. But, um, but it, it's really a journey toward, I'm not at stake here. Mm -hmm. It's not gonna be about me and I'm gonna celebrate. Now I would say, um, there's one book, one story I tell in the book, which is a moment, a rare moment of 
joyous unselfing, I'll call it. Okay. And so I'm at my dining room table at home and I'm reading a boring book, which is what I get paid to do. And my wife walks in and she walks in the front door and she stands there at the door frame and the door's open and it's summertime and the, the sun is coming through. And so she's sort of silhouetted in the sun and she doesn't even notice I'm there because mm-hmm. that's the kind of charisma I have. Uh, and, and, but I have this sensation that goes through my head. I know her. I really know her. Mm-hmm. I know her through and through. Mm. And if it was like delicious. And if you had asked me like what I knew about her at that moment, it was not like the words I would use to describe her. It was mm-hmm. not her biographical detail. It was just sort of the ebb and flow of her being, like the whole of her, the harmony of her mm-hmm. music. Uh, and like her incandescence and her flashes of fierceness and insecurity. And it was almost like at that moment, I wasn't seeing her, I was seeing out from her. And and the highlight of knowing another person is seeing a bit how they know the world. Mm -hmm. And if you'd asked me how I would describe the way I was looking at her at that moment, I wasn't observing her, I wasn't inspecting her. The only English word I can think of is I was beholding her, mm. just beholding, mm-hmm. just like appreciative gaze. And I told that to of some friends of mine and they have grandkids. They said, that's what we do to our grandkids. We mm-hmm. just behold them. Mm. And, and it's like, that is, that is a beautiful, unselfish moment mm-hmm. of just like appreciating another human being. Mm-hmm. And so there are those moments that were really beautiful. Why do you think that goes away in relationships? You know, that feeling yeah. Uh, do you think people lose the ability to see the other person? Like there's something that gets in the way of that? That I read a study. I don't know if I quite believe this. I'm curious to know what you think. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's a guy named William Ickes, or Ickes mm-hmm. who teaches at University of Texas. And he studies how well do people know each other when they first meet. Mm-hmm. And he finds out on average people know, understand what's going on in the other person's mind about 20% of the time. Some people are good, they 50%. Some people are 0%, but think they're 100%. But the part, so none of us are as good at understanding others as we think we are. But the part of his research that startled me was that the longer many couples are married, mm-hmm. the less they understand what the other person is thinking. And his theory about this is that when they're first madly in love, they form a model of what the other, who the other person is, mm-hmm. and then the other person changes and they never update their models. And so the, the other person becomes more and more a bit of a stranger. Mm-hmm. I, can't, I don't think that's always true. I know couples, I don't know about you, I know couples who've been married 50 years and they're basically the same person. They're like merged. Mm-hmm. But I think it, it's probably true for some. Yeah, I think what happens at the beginning of relationships, I think you put out a job description <laughs> and the person fulfills the duties of that job in the relationship. And then, you know, people get tired of every job. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, they just want to do something else. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, I had a friend said, you know. It's like, I'm not going to work today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had a friend who said, you know, when you, you marry somebody or you're in a relationship with somebody, and about mm. six months in, you realize that person is actually kind of selfish. Mm. And as they're making that realization, as you're making that realization about them, they're making that realization about you. Yes. And so a relationship works when both people decide, well, my selfishness is the only selfishness I can control here. Yeah. Uh, and so if you have both people working on their own selfishness, 
then you have a good relationship. Do you think love can actually blind people? We've heard the expression love is blind. What do you think yeah. of that statement? I sort of think the opposite. Mm-hmm. I think love is the opposite of blind. Like when mm-hmm. you're in love with someone, you're, you're like really studying them and like getting a PhD in this other person. You like thinking about them. Mm-hmm. If you're madly in love and you're away from the person, A, it hurts, mm-hmm. and B, you have what they call intrusive thinking, like you're always thinking about the person. And when you're in a crowd, I, when my first was with my wife, I would think I would see her in a cr- Like anybody who looked <laughs> remotely like her, I would think, oh, there she is, but it would be some stranger. Yeah. So I think love is, love is focused attention. Love is a form of attention. Yeah. Maybe it's infatuation, you know, because there, there is a form of attachment where I think you see less. Yeah. And a form of attachment where I think you can see more. Maybe one is toxic or something. Yeah. Um, if you saw my wife and I together, you would think her love is blind. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think a healthy relationship is, you know, when you think of the unhealthy relationships, I think maybe the bonds are formed through the things we would like the person to be. Yeah. And maybe that's where we where it seems like people change because people ascribe qualities to the partner that just aren't there. Yeah, that does happen. Yeah, and, so, so there's I, a projection that happens, yeah. too. I keep coming back to skills. Like, mm-hmm. we, we, th- we th- think of, like, learning algebra as a skill, but f- being in love is not a skill. But mm-hmm. I, I've learned, I was online because I do this kind of serious research, and I ran across some blog posts, 10 ways to have a great relationship. Mm-hmm. And one of it was boast about your partner and have them overhear you boasting. Hmm. Which is, that's good advice. That's interesting. And yeah. another was, they tell you never go to bed mad. Mm-hmm. Sometimes just go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> you wake up in the morning, you'll make breakfast, it'll be a lot better. Uh, yeah. And the only, the third that's one, hilarious. I can't remember all of her bits of advice. One of them was, if you got a bitch to somebody about your spouse, if you got a bitch to somebody about your husband, uh, bitch to his mom and not yours. Because his mom will forgive him and your mom never will. Mm. And so, bitch to his mom, not yours. (laughs) I'm thinking back now. (laughs) Very, very interesting. What about with children? Is it, how important is it for parents to see children? Because we, you know, there's a lot of talk in our culture now that helicopter parents, it's too much. Parents put too much much attention on their kids, you know, that that can be a very toxic thing. So, what is the right equation there, do you think? Yeah, I would lean toward attention. I mean, Mm -hmm. when babies come out of the womb, they're looking for a face to see. The Mm -hmm. recognition is the first human quest. Mm -hmm. And from what I understand, when a a baby comes out of the womb, they can see 18 inches away very sharply, and everything else is kind of a blur, Mm -hmm. because they they want mom's face to be sharp when they're nursing. And so, and I don't know if you've ever gone online and seen these YouTube um, still face experiments where the baby will send out a bit of recognition from mom and the researchers tell the mom to just not react, go still face. And at first the babies are upset and then they get worse and then within 10 seconds they're in agony. Because mm-hmm. if mom isn't reacting, it's an existential crisis. And so I, I do think humans need recognition and kids especially. Mm-hmm. And the one part of it that I think is especially important. There's no, I read somewhere there's no right way to parent. There's only the right way to parent for your kid. And so if yeah. your kid is uh, really perceives threat very quickly or is, has a lot of negative emotions, very sensitive to negative emotion, and you are like not the most agreeable person in the world, mm-hmm. you're kind of gruff, then what you perceive as your voice being just normal, your kid will perceive it as screaming. Yeah. And so you got to understand how your kid is because of their personality traits, how the, the kid is, 
is perceiving you and you have to adjust to them. That's so interesting. Um, I think a lot of us feel there are like hard and fast rules to parenting, people that are parents, you know, and there are some, you know, some generalities that do make sense and everything, but I think you're right. I think um, um, active listening is also required to be a good parent because yeah. there's so many different types of kids. My, my uh, son is autistic, he has Asperger's, you know, mm -hmm. And even just the literal of what you said is true, like sounds just, you know, were just louder to him and yeah. the way he interacted with the world. And, yeah. you know, thank God both me and his mom were very patient with that. But there were some tough times the, when you don't understand what's going on and you think the way you parent this child yeah. is the way you should parent this child. Right. But you're not really seeing that child, you know. Yeah. Every family produces one perfect child. It's just that their traits are spread amongst all the children in the family. Uh, <laughs> um, but like in that case, I, like I, you have to know, the, another part of seeing a person, you have to know about the different traits of human nature. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't understand Asperger's because I, as I understand it, you tell me if I'm wrong, like I thought they're, they're not perceiving a lot, but it, it turns out they're perceiving too, like so much. It, it's Absolutely. Like, it's, it's more of a social... Uh, construct too. They they don't interact socially the way we necessarily do. So there's a lot of things that they have to learn and there can be some um, um, functions that they can't do. Like drinking out of a straw is very difficult really? for John. Things like that. Some normal things. But they just process things differently and they're usually very acutely aware of things. I remember my son didn't talk for a long time and uh, he was so clever. Occasionally he would say something and you didn't, you were always shocked when he said something. You know? Like I remember um, he, I thought he had very few words and there were some deer that used to come in our backyard and I said, oh look, John, there goes, there goes the daddy deer and there goes the mama deer and he goes, and there goes, and he goes, and a fawn. <laughs> I go, oh, where did this come yeah. from? <laughs> That's good. Like, he's like, hurry up, I know what this is, you know. Yeah. <laughs> he would do yeah. things like that, he would surprise you. He would play with toys and he'd look out of the side of his eyes just observing things, you know. But then he would do things like he could hear like some music played and he could play it. You really? know? Yeah. It was fascinating, at five years old, he could yeah. just play things. He would play the um, um, Charlie Brown music. Dun, 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 dun. And my wife, who was uh, you know, a music major, she's like, how does he do that? And he's like, he could transpose the key and that kind of stuff, mm. you know? It was crazy and he could do it just by listening. But his relationship with those things is completely different. Yeah, you know, uh, so, one of the things I've learned is that human minds, each one is very different from yes. the others. And that we all like construct our own reality yeah. based on the models we have on our head. And that's even like fundamental, like, uh, like vision, like looking at a water bottle mm -hmm. would seem like a very obvious thing. You just open your eyes and the light comes in. Yeah. But in reality, that's not the way vision works because if we just had light come in, we'd be overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. And so what the brain does is it projects out a model of what it predicts to see. Mm. And then the eyes check back to see if we're really seeing it. But if our mind is not predicting we're going to see it, we don't see it. Mm -hmm. And so there, there's a famous experiment, some of you have probably seen on YouTube, where they have a bunch of people passing a basketball, and they tell the research subjects, count the number of times the ball is passed. And they count. And then the, after the experiment, and they say, well, did you see the gorilla? They say, what are you talking about? They say, watch the video again. And this time with gorilla planted in their head, they see a guy in a gorilla suit walk in the middle of the basketball game, wave his hands and walk out. Mm -hmm. But because they didn't predict it, they didn't see it. And so the way we perceive the world is way more idiosyncratic. Mm -hmm. And so like we in, who speak English, we look up at a rainbow mm -hmm. and we see a seven banded rainbow. 
And in reality, a rainbow has no bands and has no color. It's just a bunch of particles and light waves. But Russians, who have two different words for the color blue, a light blue and a dark blue, mm -hmm. they see an eight-banded rainbow because they have two different blues in their head. Mm -hmm. And so it's amazing we see the world the same ever because all our minds are like processing in very different ways than one another. That's why it's important to ask people questions. Because I have never heard that Russians see a different rainbow. This is like... <laughs> <laughs> and that's why we have the Ukraine war. <laughs> Conspiracy. Uh, what about culturally, though? Can this be uh, applied culture? What, let me ask. Let me ask you this: thing. Why is it so difficult for peoples, as opposed to people, peoples, to be living right next to each other, right on top of each other, and yet have no ability to see one yeah. another culturally? Uh, partly, it's because cultures really are different one from another, mm -hmm. uh, and so like our culture in America is pretty individualistic. Mm -hmm. And if, but if you go to Asian, they're more collective cultures, more mm -hmm. communal cultures. And actually, if you go to pretty much anywhere in the world, they're more communal than we are. Mm -hmm. uh, and so when they've done these experiments, when they took Americans looking at the Mona Lisa in the Louvre, mm -hmm. our eyes gravitate around her eyes and her mouth. Where if the Japanese uh, tourists, their eyes scan the whole painting. Hmm. If they, a similar guy, there's a guy at University of Wisconsin who does all this research. If you ask a Japanese person to describe a fish tank, mm -hmm. they describe the, the, uh, the vegetation and all the, the whole context. Mm. We just pick the biggest fish and describe <laughs> that. It's <laughs> so and American. So we, we literally look at the world differently. Yeah. And, and, but then it can ebb and flow. There, there's a great book of French journalists after the Rwandan genocide mm. asked uh, uh, one of the people who, who macheted his neighbor of 25 years what it was like. And he said, at the moment I took the machete to his neck, I didn't, his face sort of went blurry and I didn't see the person who had been living next to me all those years. <sighs> so once you whip up like group versus group hatred, yeah. then suddenly faces go away mm -hmm. and people literally are dehumanized and unfaced. Wow. And that's, well, we've seen that in the Middle East. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is going to be an odd question to ask. Uh, I apologize ahead of time because it might be kind of too big. But I thought, why don't I just ask this and see what you would think. What is anti-Semitism? I just, what is that? You know, it's, it's something, I want to know how to ask this too. Um, I've always been confounded by it. You know, I've never understood it. Um, just what, what do you think is at the root of it? You know, it and we can use this conversation as a way to talk about it. We don't have to talk about it in the traditional sense, but in the tradition, in the way that your book right. talks about seeing people. And yeah, that I mean, first, what is any form of bigotry? It's inability to recognize another human being. Mm -hmm. And so actually one of the, inf the inspirations for the book was the very first passage of Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. And he has an unnamed character. And the guy says, when somebody, when people look at me, they see everything but me. Mm -hmm. They see their stereotypes of me. They say generalizations about me. They see the context around me. They're unwilling to see me. And so, and he says, I, I want to show I exist. And I want to lash out mm -hmm. at them. Uh, and so any form of bigotry is a form of unseeing. Anti-Semitism is hard to... Um, like why the Jews in particular? Yeah, mm -hmm. I think it's a, um, it's a small group of people who it's... I guess people can tell a story. These small group of people secretly have power and run the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and why the Jews and not the Babylonians got picked <laughs> right, for this right, role. Right, right. But, um, 
And it's a group of people um, who are traveling through societies. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they're not really in the society. Jews in their exile after the destruction of the temple were told to be a creative minority in the society. Mm -hmm. And so often living not where they're not the majority group. Uh, and then I, you know, I can only, I'm, I'm just speculating. I really don't know. Cause mm -hmm. it's like, why, why the obsession? And there's this obsession where there are no Jews. There's just the obsession. Mm -hmm. And maybe there's a perception that Jews are um, more, like they were a small part of the population, but disproportionately accomplished. Mm -hmm. Like if you look at the people who won Best Picture Oscars for mm -hmm. directors, disproportionately Jewish, uh, Nobel Prizes, chess grandmasters. Uh, and I have a cultural explanation for that. If you're, you know, Jews are, a, a could not own land. So studying and research and education mm -hmm. was the thing we could do. Uh, second, Jews were some marginal people in a far off, obscure part of the world. And the Torah says God's chosen people, like the whole world revolves around us. Mm -hmm. And so on one hand, that's an awesome responsibility and a lot of pressure packed. But on the other hand, maybe people look and think, they're God's chosen people? Yeah. Hell no. We're, I mean, it's yeah. hard to rationalize. Like, what, what about Judaism threatening the Nazis? Like, yeah, European anti-Semitism also, you know, as insidious as it was, when I was a child, it, I just could not wrap my head around yeah. it. You know, it just makes no sense. Uh, it seems so irrational to me, you know. Jews couldn't win for losing. If you're an outsider, you're hated. And if you're an insider, yeah. you know, if you're part of something, you're hated. You yeah, know? and then on college campuses, just the last few weeks, um, you know, Jews being told at MIT, you can't go in the front door of this because you, it's not safe. Mm -hmm. um, there was a, a Jews barricaded in a library at, at a school in New York Cooper Union. And um, it's just, yeah, I, I wish I had a better answer for that. But there is just a lot of bigotry, free, free, free floating bigotry in the mm -hmm. world. And if you tell people group stories that some group is bad or your enemy, people love an us-them dichotomy. Mm -hmm. And they, a certain number of people will latch on. To, if you tell them a story, good versus evil, mm -hmm. then they like that. A lot of people just like the simplicity of that story. It makes them feel good about themselves. Yeah, it's, uh, it seems like the only hope for some of these things is you have to get to young people and teach them the value of other people and yeah. break down some of these uh, things that get in the way of, of seeing people. Yeah, right? I've found in my career as a journalist, I travel around the country interviewing people, most of whom I disagree with. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to hate somebody up close in general. Yeah. Occasionally it happens, but... Well, a lot of people are good at that, though, too. Yeah, yeah that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm being too naive. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you had an, another chapter. We're going to get to some questions, too, uh, from the audience. I wanted to ask, and maybe we'll end on this, because I love the title of this chapter. What is a person? Yeah. Brilliant question. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I what asked, is a person? <laughs> I ask my students this. What is a person? Like, they go to school somewhere, this thing should have been answered. Yeah. Uh, and so my answer is a person is a point of view. Mm -hmm. That the greatest thing we do is we take the experience of our life, the memories of our life, frankly, the memories of our ancestors, the heritage, and we create a distinct, never-to-be-repeated way of seeing the world. Mm. A set of opinions, a set of values. Uh, this matters to me more than that. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, and so a person, what we do is, why are we here? Why do we read books? Yeah. Why do we talk to each other? It's because we're hoping to learn something so we can have a better point of view mm -hmm. uh, and a more accurate point of view and a wiser point of view. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there, um, there's a phrase from Aldous Huxley, 
experience is not what happens to you, it's what you do with what happens to you. Mm. And so we could have a, you, we could sit here together, we're in the same room, but we're having different experiences, each of us. Right. Some people are assaulted and it's a life traumatic event. Yeah. And some people are assaulted and it's not a life traumatic event. Mm -hmm. And so we don't see with our eyes, we see with our entire lives. Mm. And so that's why people are so fascinated because each person you meet has taken the events of their lives, the hurts of their lives, the pains, the blessings, what their parents taught them, what their parents didn't teach them, the wounds they carry, and they've created a unique way of seeing the world. Yeah. And so to me, it's a creative act. Each person is an artist. Mm -hmm. And it's like a, a movie. We're each creating our own movie and inside we have a, a director, here's what you pay attention to. We have somebody writing the score. Here are the emotional moods. We have editors. This is what I'm gonna remember. This is what I'm not gonna remember. Right. So you take of all the different roles in making a movie, yeah. that's all in here. Yeah. And our brain is so phenomenal that we don't appreciate how much work it's doing. Yeah, that's like, a fact. It's, it's, it's like writing a Proustian novel or like The Godfather. And to us, it feels like nothing at all. Yeah. And so to me, a person is a point of view. Very good, very good. <laughs> yeah, that was great. I love that actually, awesome. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. This episode is brought to you by hotels.com. If you're busy like me and you're trying to catch your kids' games, it's important to have somewhere where you can go to find a good hotel. We're all over the place. Sometimes, you know, we're in Florida, we'll be in New York. You wanna take the wife on a quick vacation and get away? Whether you're looking for a relaxing getaway or heading out of town to see the playoffs, Hotels.com app has a perfect hotel for every trip. Compare up to five hotels side by side so you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings without having to switch back and forth between options. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser. But I am a joggers guy. I just, once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC Pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. Uh, open up the questions from Mr. Brutes. If I could just quickly say thank you. I think that you are a voice of um, morality and thoughtfulness in our culture at a time when we could use many more. So thank, thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Just curious, you mentioned how brutal the last five years have been. There seems to have been a... a a dark side of humanity on display, cruelty, selfishness. Is that something new, do you think? Or has it always been there and always will be there and we're just seeing it more clearly now? Yeah, 
I guess, well, first, it doesn't help when the person at the top of society is ripping us to shreds and modeling cruel behavior. So that, the Trump presidency, I think, was bad. But I, I have to say, um, you know, I read a lot of history, uh, and there's been a lot of brutality uh, in American and world history ever since. I, I just finished a book on post-war European history. And so we think of Europe as this nice, peaceful place, and we, we go to Italy and France. But if you looked at what happened, say, right after the war, I'm not talking about World War II, like 1945 to 55, first the Russian forces were basically raping their way across Central Europe. Mm -hmm. And the, the amount of bloodshed and mm -hmm. atrocity was unbelievable. And then after the war, people take advantage of the chaos to settle any score they can think of. And so there's a lot of vigilante justice. Mm -hmm. And you go back and you think, like, we're, we're feeling down about ourselves, but name me a culture, name me a decade where things were pretty terrible. Like, maybe the 90s, that was a decent decade. <laughs> but, but you go back to, like, 1890s lynching, 1780s, the vice president of the United States shoots the former treasury secretary in a duel and kills him. Like, I regard that as uncivil behavior. Uh, and so, and then you go to the revolutionary period, mm -hmm. like they were vicious to each other. Mm -hmm. And so That's I- That's why they had to say no cruel and unusual yeah, punishment. Right. Because cruel and unusual punishment <laughs> yeah. was going on. Right. And so uh, mm -hmm. I, I think we, the more you read history, the more you think we're just beasts. <laughs> and, and the crust of civilization can be thin. But the, the good news is we have created standards. So things like that we used to cheer, like bear baiting or- Let's go to, let's go watch a hanging. Like that used to be entertainment. And so I sort of believe in progress mm -hmm. and that we've made some progress, but the crust of civilization is still thin. Yeah, the greatest empire ever, arguably the Roman Empire was also the most brutal. Yeah. I mean, it really made its name from its brutality. It's, it's, you, it's hard to even imagine when you read now. It's like, no, that, it couldn't have happened <laughs> yeah, like that. Yeah. But yet it did. And Compassion, as we understand it, they didn't really have that value. Humility, no, they had not value. It didn't exist. And, and I read, I, I don't know if I believe this, this is a great neuroscientist, Lisa Feldman Barrett. She said smiling wasn't invented till the Middle Ages. I don't know, is that possible? Don't we all smile? I don't know. But she said, no, people didn't smile. They would bare their teeth, but it didn't mean what we think it means. It was probably the plague. They're going, ah. <laughs> <laughs> hey. Yeah. Mm. All right. Question. Yes. Oh, thank you for this. It's been incredible. Starting with a W question. Um, why are people, honestly, sincere question, why do you think people are not more curious? Why do they prefer to talk about themselves than to ask others about themselves. Why aren't people more curious? curious yeah, mm -hmm. I, I can't remember if I said this, but I, I think that 30% of people I meet are curious. Mm -hmm. Like they ask you questions, the rest are just in broadcast mode. And I think mm -hmm. we just wanna, we want to show who we are. Mm -hmm. And people love telling their story, but not enough people love asking stories. And one of the people I interviewed for this um, book was a guy named Dan McAdams who studies how people tell their life story. Mm -hmm. And he has them come into his office and he asks them for four hours, tell me your high points, your low points, and your turning points. And after the four hours, he hands them a little check for the compensate them for their time. And a lot of people push back the check and say, um, I don't want money for this. This has been one of the best afternoons of my life. Because <laughs> nobody has ever asked them. Mm -hmm. And if I had to theorize, I'd say, A, it's like we were talking about before, egotism. B, 
a sense of if I ask questions, people will find it too intrusive. Mm -hmm. And so I can tell you as a journalist, like you on your podcast, like my job is to ask questions. That's mm -hmm. my job. And how many times has somebody said, none of your damn business? Mm -hmm. The answer, zero in 40 years of doing this. Because if you ask respectfully, people tell, tell me some more about yourself, they will do it. They love doing it. And so I think we're just too inhibited. Uh, and uh, so th those are the only explanations I can think of, but um, it's sort of a social plague. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people react like they're relieved. You want to know about me? <laughs> you know, yeah. it, It's a great question. Tell me yeah. more about yourselves. Great question yeah. to put out there. Thank you. Hi, thank you so much. This was really remarkable. I want to thank you for your tender authenticity, both of you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And it, it touches me in a place as a, as a woman to hear from two grown-ass men <laughs> being so tender. A lot of toxic masculinity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my question to you, David, is... What I'm really curious about is how is your life from the inside out of your heart? How has that changed and how is it like on a daily basis for you now? Because it seems like you've turned 180 degrees. Mm. Yeah. And, and how, are you, how are you being with all of that on a daily basis? And what does your family say? <laughs> mm. Like I didn't ask you, do you have children? But yeah, I do have what, three kids. What's the reflection from the people who've known you their whole life? And now suddenly you're this other being, because I'm sure you are. Yeah, I, I get that a lot from my friends. Um, and my wife says, she looks at me on TV before we knew each other, and she's like, I wouldn't have married that guy. Hmm. Uh, hmm. And so, um, I, I, to be honest, I feel a lot more sadness and a lot more joy. And so before, I remember in high school thinking, you know, I'm watching all these people who are so deep, and they suffer a lot. Hmm. And I'm so glad I'm shallow. <laughs> but now I'm probably a little deeper, I hope. But I, I definitely have more feelings of, um, of joy. Uh, and, but I, and, and, but I definitely have more feelings of sadness. Hmm. And like I'll miss my wife or uh, I'll be much more moved by music than I was before. And unfortunately, it turns out I have the heart of a 14-year-old girl because I listen to whatever 14-year-old girls are listening to at that moment. So <laughs> I know more Taylor Swift high school breakup songs than yeah. you want. Um, but, uh, and, and I think I'm, the main thing I, is that I think I just had fear of people. Like fear of intimacy, fear of feelings. Mm -hmm. And I never could have been an actor because I still can't be an actor, but I, because uh, I just, like actors express and are emotional. And I look at musicians on stage and sometimes you, they're just like all out there and I'm not where they are, it's a, but I am, I can be more genuinely myself. Thank you. Uh, yes, where has the mic? Oh, hi, Mr. Brooks, thanks for uh, coming. Um, I really like your distinction between illuminators and diminishers. And um, I think my whole life I've struggled with how to deal with diminishers and they're pretty easy to find. Um, sadly. Haters is what we call them. <laughs> Haters. <laughs> and you know, I think for me, I've always had this rule of thumb. I'll ask you three or four questions. And if you don't ask me a question back, you know, 
that, that we're kind of done. And I realize that kind of freezes people out and potentially. So I was curious to know from your perspective, like when you encounter a diminisher, how do you, do you engage them or do you kind of reach a point where you're think, oh, nothing can really be done here. Yeah. Curious to know. So I think about this a lot. So one thing I do is I'll lead with a, some curiosity to see if they, course, they reciprocate. And then I'll leave with a slight vulnerability to see if they reciprocate. And if they don't, uh, I'm not sure much. there's much to be done. I wish I had an answer like how to turn a diminisher into an illuminator. Mm -hmm. But maybe you know this thing. But like, I, one of the rules I have now is if you take me out to coffee and blab at me for 45 minutes, we will not be enjoying the pleasure of each other's company again. Because like, like I'm in Washington, the most emotionally avoidant spot on the face of the earth. Uh, somebody joked that the people who moved to Washington were not the naughty kids who threw the cat in the dryer. They were the kids who tattled on the kid who threw the cat in the dryer. And so I'm on the phone like a decade ago with a friend of mine who was serving the Obama administration. And we're having a conversation and I'm on my phone, my cell phone, and our call drops. And I think, okay, he's gonna call me back in three or four minutes. So I wait and I wait, five minutes pass, seven minutes pass. And uh, finally I call his office 10 minutes later and his assistant said, he can't talk to you, he's on the phone. And I'm like, he's on the phone with me. He does not know he's been bloviating for 10 minutes. And so I, there's, I have not found it in my ability to turn that person into a listener. <laughs> and so maybe, I don't know if you have any. No, there's, there's little tricks sometimes, you know, that you can use with people like, um, one thing I, I always say, when people say, how's it going? I always say, hanging in there, you know, because it takes care of, people that celebrate and people that grouse, Because you know? <laughs> if you're a celebrator, you go, yeah, hanging in there, that's right, you gotta do that, right? I agree with you, you know? But if it's a grouse, I go, yeah, I hear you, hanging in there, what are you gonna do, you know? So then I get to see where they're at, you know? And if you throw another grouse at a grouser, he thinks that he has a friend. You know? <laughs> and that's the opening to yeah. a conversation. You know? yeah. I, I, I hear you, Ugh. I had one of those. <laughs> just two days ago, I met somebody in Miami and he said, I, I came down here, I was gonna, wondering, should I move? So I asked an old guy who lived in Miami, what's it like here? Mm -hmm. And he said, let me tell you a story. I, I had a couple from New York ask me that question. And I said, well, what's it like for you in New York? And they said, oh, it's crowded, it's dirty, dirty, the people are really rude. Mm -hmm. And he says, it'll be like that for you here. And then later, <laughs> and then later a couple from Indiana came and said, what, and they should move here. And he said, well, what's it like for you in Indiana? He said, oh, the people are wonderful. Uh, people are warm. And he said, oh, it'll be like that for you here. <laughs> and so it's, it's what you bring to the situation. Not Other the situation. side of the lake. Yeah, great. Who's next? Where's the mic? Uh, thanks so much for your insights and, and joining us in Los Angeles. Um, I'm curious about your thoughts on current, maybe near future, maybe long-term future spaces where we, and maybe particularly youth, can be in the same space and can kind of develop the skills that you're talking about. Um, I, for one, um, am really struggling with the loss of work in an office space. Um, but I... I, I hold out hope that there are other places and new types of spaces where, where people can, uh, can, can share the same physical space. Yeah. Well, it could be that if you're in all the workplaces I'm familiar with, 
the bosses are trying to get people to come back to work, mm -hmm. and it's the young people who are most resistant, mm -hmm. which is just crazy because that's where you learn the mentorship. That's where you learn all the informal parts of any job. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it used to be people were encountering each other going to religious services. Mm -hmm. And then the amount of church attendance is plummeting, especially for the young. Uh, and I saw a study um, a couple weeks ago where people who go to church uh, or synagogue or mosque, whatever, who are in a congregation, they have higher levels of trust, they give more to charity, they have higher happiness levels. And it's not really necessarily the religious belief, mm -hmm. it's just the community. Right. And then they, they studied people who had gone to church online and they saw no, no benefits from it. And so the, some of the online congregating we do is, is not satisfying our souls. Although I did have a friend who's in her 40s who was just starting a relationship with a guy. And I said, have you FaceTimed yet? <laughs> and she said, no, no, we're not that close. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> like FaceTime oh, is yeah. intense. Yeah. What, what are you, but, a monster? <laughs> yeah, right. But so uh, one of the things I think that needs to happen is, one, we need to teach young people these skills I've been talking about in school, like how to flirt, how to break up with somebody. Just teach them in school. And two, we need a lot more intergenerational service. Mm -hmm. And so I found if, if you go to a university when there are seniors taking classes and they take classes with a 20-year-old, the friendship bonds they form between, say, a seven-year-old and a 20-year-old are often quite extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And so somehow we have to make more occasion for intergenerational friendship and service. And I learned teaching college that they have parents, but they need more parents. Uh, young people need more parents these days, maybe always did. And so those sort of intergenerational bonds is something we should think about. Well, we talked also, do you think we've lost a lot from not having the um, community-type uh, uh, institutions, civic clubs, Elks clubs, those types of things, you know, where people participated in the community on behalf of the community, but it wasn't political, you know, yeah. those types of things. Or, or even just adult clubs. Like, I remember the Magic Castle, you know, and it's great. It's a magic club. You know? yeah. I get to hang out with people and we have a shared interest. People I normally wouldn't have a chance to meet. Yeah, there, there was a time in American life, I think in the 1920s, 30s, where like 30% of the Americans, men and women, were involved in the Elks Club or the Rotary. Mm -hmm. or, and those, the best thing about those clubs is they were cross-class. Mm -hmm. You had rich folks and poor folks. And now we, if we're gonna join a club, it might be the Sierra Movement, Sierra Club, which is just, you send in a check every year. That's the club. Mm -hmm. And so I think the loss of some of those cr cross-class clubs uh, is that loss of what they call social capital. But it can be built easily. I have a friend who, she says, I practice aggressive friendship. Mm. So I'm going to be the person in the neighborhood inviting people over. Right. And all you need is a dinner table and some technology of convening. And if we all did that a little more, I, this project, the Weave, the Social Fabric Project, it's about celebrating people who are building hyper-local communities. Uh, and so I, I was in... Um, there's a famous study. Um, people in Compton are way more likely to achieve social mobility uh, and than people in Watts. And the neighborhoods are similar, mm -hmm. and the incarceration rates in Compton are much lower than incarceration rates in Watts. And so they're like, I don't know, what, a couple miles away from each other. 
And so why is there such disparity between these two neighborhoods with pretty similar demographics? Mm-hmm. And the one answer is that Compton is this, its own city and Watts isn't. Mm-hmm. And so they have more civic architecture. But the main answer is there's just a lot more civic enterprises in Compton. And so people get to know each other and then they have different life outcomes because there's more community life. And so I've met people in Watts who are just trying to remedy that. And I met a woman named, well, not Keisha is her name, and she runs something called Sisters of Watts. And it's just like anything the neighborhood wants, I will do. And so she's backpacks, showers for the homeless, cleaning up an empty lot. Mm-hmm. And it's like an effort to say, no, we, we're, we're missing some of that civic life here. Yeah. Like I, I really, you know, we talk about politics, Trump and all that, but I, I really hated the attack, um, the poll workers in that last election saying they were cheating and that. These people donate their time <laughs> under horrible weather, you know, long hours. Many times they're elderly, you know, and it's the time to be out with people and to interact with people and the service that they provide for us, you know, is extraordinary. And to blame these people yeah, <laughs> that they're right. somehow stealing or rigging the election, <laughs> right. that was one of the worst things yeah. um, out of yeah. some of those accusations, yeah. you know, during that yeah. time. But anyhow, that's another place, you know, for that type of interaction, you know, right. those type of civic yeah. events right. and that type Absolutely. of thing. All right, we got a chance for a couple time, more? Time for okay. two more questions. Have one here and then a gentleman down here to him. Man uh, with a hat. So my personal default setting is to ask people a lot of questions, but by the end I'm like, oh wow, they haven't asked anything about me. They know nothing about me. Is there any upper limit to how curious one can be without <laughs> actually sharing uh, your own information? Yeah, well, I would say I, I am often in conversation with somebody who's really supporting Donald Trump. And so I'm, my fear is they're going to ask me a question like, where do you work? And I'll say, oh, I work at the New York Times. And this conversation is about to go south in a big way. <laughs> so sometimes I'm glad they don't ask. And I have, uh, I have found it's, it's not like every great conversation, every great relationship is reciprocal. Mm. And if it's not reciprocal, it's not as much fun, it's not rewarding, it's not really a conversation, it's not a relationship. Mm-hmm. And nonetheless, it's still interesting. Like there's a guy named Studs Terkel who was a legend mm-hmm. when I was growing up. Absolutely. And he was like an oral historian. He would just mm-hmm. ask people their questions. And just reading those stories was tremendously fascinating, yeah. even though it was not a two-way thing. And so I would, my answer would be that it's not great when, nobody, when they don't care about you, yeah. but... If you delve into their lives, you'll be amazed by what you find. I get the opposite because people want to know, once I, they know what I do, oh, how does that work? How did that? And I have to work to turn it around and ask uh, yeah. about them. Cause, yeah. And they think their life's not interesting. They're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> right, right, right. I want to know, what do you do? You <laughs> yeah. know? And then once they start talking about themselves, they open up in a completely different way because they don't realize they're closed off when they're not. Yeah. Engaging in a two-way conversation. You right, know. right. Our final right question here. for the evening. It's been patient. Yeah, about um, about ten years ago, I was with you and three thousand other people in San Francisco, and someone asked you to explain how Saint Augustine affected your life, and it it was brilliant. And share it with us, if you would. Okay, I've got to remember that was How like three Augustine books. Yeah. Uh, you know, St. Augustine is, is one of the most brilliant minds I've ever encountered. He was uh, first, uh, you know, if you, he was writing, I don't know, 1,600 years ago. 
and his analyses of, of how memory works, of how consciousness works, uh, it's stunning. It's like he's reading a neuroscientist who was writing last week. Uh, and then the second uh, thing to say about him, he, he was as emotionally vibrant as it's possible to be. Uh, and he, uh, you know, if you're, he's constantly weeping. <laughs> and so he's like a model of being super intellectual and super emotional at the same time. Mm-hmm. But I guess the biggest effect on um, my life was, I used to tell my Yale students, I used to teach his book, Confessions. He was one of you guys. Like he was like the most brilliant thing. He grew up in um, North Africa and uh, he was like, the, the town recognized this guy has a mind. He also had the, mo- the king of all helicopter moms <laughs> named Monica. And to escape her, he, he said, uh, I'm going to go see a friend of mine who's coming on a boat. And so she would hang back. And so instead he went to the harbor and he got on a boat for Italy. And she's like screaming at him, Augustin, get back here, you monster. She follows him Italy. And they have this intense sort of love-hate relationship. But he's like a young superstar of what we would call being a pundit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was a rhetorician. He's practicing in the court. And he sees a homeless man one day and he says, and the guy was drunk and having fun. I think that guy is homeless and he's drunk, but he looks like he's having fun. And that's more than I experience. And then he says, maybe I'm trying to have a higher good than he is. And then he thinks, no, I'm trying to get the same thing he's having. And I'm miserable and he's happy. What's going on here? Uh, And he realizes that that kind of desire for worldly happiness is not going to satisfy him. And so he has to elevate his desires. And Augustine is the great author that we human beings are desiring creatures before we're thinking creatures. Hmm. And the essence of being a good person is to elevate your desires and to love higher things that are worthy of love. And if you tell me a secret and I blab it at a dinner party, I put my love of popularity above my love of friendship. Hmm. And that's disordered. That's disordered love. And so he, he is a good talk about me as a grower. Like that guy went through remarkable transformations in his life. And the climax of his life is this moment where he's like despairing about his life. And then he thinks he hears a child's voice say, pick up a book and read. And it's a Bible. He picks up the Bible and it says, not in whoring, not in lusting, but in love of God, you will come to find yourself. And he's just an example of, to me, of how this brilliant emotional guy could ultimately devote himself to the highest of all possible causes, which is the transcendent love of God. Mm. And um, it's, he was still a battler. He, was a, he fought theological wars, mm-hmm. but it's a, a life of remarkable growth from worldly success to much higher spiritual greatness, really. And so you re- I recommend that book, Confessions, whether you have faith or not, just you'll, you'll be introduced to levels of spiritual and emotional and moral awareness that are surpassing of most of us today. And spoiler alert, he becomes a saint. Yeah. He does. That's a good outcome. <laughs> and a city in Florida. <laughs> yeah. A couple of spoilers in there for you guys. Well, can you uh, help me in uh, thanking Mr. David Brooks for being here?
Thank you so much, David. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. 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 Thanks.